from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good evening and welcome to this Friday edition of Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement at Family Research Council. It's my pleasure to be sitting in with you this evening. Quick announcement, we must stop the World Health Organization's Global Governance Plan, which is an unprecedented power grab under the guise of future pandemic responses. Now, FRC is at the forefront of working to expose the WHO and awaken more freedom-loving Americans to this threat. Will you help us reach as many citizens as possible with this critical message? Now, this week only, your gift will be quadrupled, yes, quadrupled, thanks to a special challenge match. To take advantage of this and partner with FRC, please call 800-225-4008. Again, to have your support quadrupled this week, call 800 800- Two two five four zero zero eight, and we are so grateful for it. Coming up today on the program, Representative Andy Harris will stop by to give us the latest on an aid package for Israel and legislation to fund the government that must pass by November 17th, a quickly approaching deadline. Also, International Christian Concern has released a new report which tells us which countries are persecuting Christians more severely at this point. Also, John Cooper, lead singer for the band Skillet, has written a new book called Wimpy, Weak, and Woke, which is guaranteed, a title guaranteed to trigger some people. He stops by to tell us exactly what or who he's referring to in that title. And finally, we'll finish off our program with a discussion about what it looks like to have your brain on critical theory. All of that coming up today. But first, our headline. Earlier today, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu reiterated his warning to terrorist group Hezbollah to not enter the conflict between Israel and Hamas. The latest warning came after yesterday's sudden escalation of strikes by Hezbollah across Israel's northern border. Also today, the leader of Lebanon's Hezbollah warned the United States that preventing a wider regional conflict depended on stopping Israel's attacks against Hamas in Gaza, which Israel may not be inclined to do. Does that mean it's only a matter of time before Hezbollah declares an all-out war on Israel? Joining me now for an update from on the ground in Israel is freelance war reporter Chuck Holton. Chuck, welcome back to Washington Watch. Sure thing, Joseph. Good to see you. Now, I had a couple of the headlines there. What's the latest from your perspective there in Israel? Well, I'm in the northern tip of Israel in a town called Kiryat Shimona. It's the largest town in the northern part of Israel. And it's completely empty now. It's been evacuated for weeks. And the reason for that is because of those rocket attacks that have been near constant since the 7th of October. And they have been slowly ramping up every day. Yesterday, when I pulled into town about 5 p.m., just after dark, I could watch rockets taking off from Israel and flying into Lebanon and exploding against the mountains in in Lebanon. And that was in response to rocket attacks that had come into Kirat Shimona just minutes before. Uh, There were a couple of injuries, light injuries, nothing serious, but they did destroy a shopkeeper's uh, storefront in downtown Kiryat Shimona, as well as uh, several cars that were in the parking lot when that rocket hit. The interesting thing about that rocket attack is that it did not come from Hezbollah. It actually came from Hamas in Lebanon. Many people don't know that uh, Hamas has chapters in Lebanon and in the West Bank. And that helps to, helps us to understand that it's not just Hezbollah that's the threat. We have other militias, Shiite militias that are funded by Iran that come out of Iraq and come out of Syria that are made up of just large groups of kind of the United Nations of what's left over of ISIS. And so you have people from Pakistan, Chechnya, and Sudan, and all over the world, extremist Muslims that are flocking to this cause and saying that they're coming into Lebanon to attack Israel. Now, the question is, will they actually do it? 
what we saw today was this speech by Hassan Nasrallah, the commander of Hezbollah, where he made lots of noises uh, praising the martyrs of October 7th and that sort of thing, but stopped short of calling for all-out war, stopped short of uh, actually declaring war on Israel. Uh, what he did say is that they will not be deterred by the threats from the United States and Israel, and that all options are still on the table. Uh, what that means is anybody's guess. But if you read between the lines a little bit, it kind of sounded like he was leaving Hamas out to dry by saying that the Palestinians were the ones who planned October 7th and executed it, and we didn't know anything about it. Uh, that was the only line in that speech that made me think that perhaps he's not planning on uh, on on declaring war against Israel. And that's probably because uh, Hezbollah is as much a political party as it is a militia group anymore, and they have a lot of political concerns inside Lebanon that they have to worry about if they're going to declare war on Israel. Now, Chuck, uh, very quickly, you mentioned that the town you're in there has been evacuated because of these ro these rocket launches. Where are people going? Uh, more than a quarter million people have been evacuated from Israel's borders, uh, border areas within five kilometers of, of the border in the north and in the south. And they are there's a government program that will pay for them to go to hotels. So I have an apartment in Jerusalem. There's a big hotel right across the street from that apartment. And it's completely full now of refugees or internally displaced people. And so they're either doing that or going to stay with family elsewhere inside Israel. Now, there's been a lot of talk about pauses in the war recently, and the Pentagon has uh, tried to make it clear that that's different than a ceasefire. Is this a distinction without a difference? Is that a political distinction, or is there really something meaningful, uh, meaningfully different between a pause and a ceasefire? Now, the Israelis understand that either way would represent a win for Hamas, and Hamas would claim it as such. So whether it's a pause or a ceasefire, whatever you want to call it, Hamas would be able to come out and say, we stopped the Israeli army. We win. Uh, it would be a an information war uh, coup for Hamas. And, and besides, I don't think politically the government here in Israel could survive if they were to stop or even slow down on this, because the people of Israel are, are out for blood, and they're, they are not happy one bit about the fact, for example, that Israel is actually providing drinking water to people in the, in the southern part of Gaza. Uh, it, the, Israel is trying to help people understand that they're going about this in the most humane way they possibly can. But war is war, and it's violent, and it's dirty, and it's wasteful. But uh, the, the people of Israel want their pound of flesh, and they will not allow the government to stop this until Hamas is done. From the Israeli perspective, what is the objective at the moment, and how close are they to accomplishing that goal? Well, they have uh, surrounded the northern part of Gaza now. Gaza City is completely encircled, and so they're going to be cleaning that out. But that doesn't mean they're close to an end. Unless Hamas were to suddenly grow a conscience and lay down its arms, uh, they, this is going to be a months-long process at least, because now what they're fighting is a tunnel insurgency, which is probably the most uh, horrific and difficult uh, military operation you could ever dream of. Uh, how how long it's going to last? Well, uh, their objectives are to get rid of Hamas, to depose Hamas, and they're going to essentially have to pulverize the northern part of Gaza in order to even get anywhere close to doing that. And so they're also, their other uh, goal is to get the release of the hostages. If you think about it, this pause that Anthony Blinken and, and President Biden are talking about would make it significantly less likely that they'd be able to get any any decent number of those uh, hostages out. The, Hamas might trickle out one or two, but Hamas has a vested interest in drawing this thing out as long as possible. Israel understands that, and so they know they have to rip the Band-Aid off and get this over with as soon as possible, get as many hostages back as they can. And their only way they're going to do that is to keep the pressure on uh, Hamas in Gaza. The, other, the last objective they have is to create 
a space that is safe. So to create a buffer between Israel and what's left of the people in Gaza by basically just destroying everything in the northern part of uh, the Gaza Strip. Now, given that reality, there's been a lot of criticism from the left in the United States about military, or about Israel's operations. Uh, when U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Tel Aviv today, Israeli President Herzog made it a point to illustrate how Israel has been working hard to minimize civilian casualties. Let's play clip one. So this is a leaflet which we are sending by over 1,200,000 leaflets to the citizens of Gaza. We've carried out 6 million text messages and 4 million phone calls to the citizens of Gaza according to the rules of international law, where we alerted the citizens in advance. Chuck, what's your take on how Israel is carrying out these operations? Well, I've heard a lot of people in the States criticizing the way that Israel is going about this, but I haven't heard those same people give any actual suggestions of what Israel should do. And it makes one think that they just believe Israel ought to just lay down and die. Uh, and Israel is not disposed to do that in any way, shape, or form. So the, as I said, the people here and I'm talking about the soldiers who are going to go do the fighting. They are not ready to even slow down in the least. They want they 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 keep saying ceasefire. We haven't even started fighting yet. We, this is just a prelude to what we're going to bring to Gaza. And they understand that the information battle space is the primary battle space that has to be won, and that right now they are losing in that primary battle space simply because the media is sort of all in the tank for Palestinians and Gaza and Hamas. And so they are doing things like you saw just there uh, to, to try to make it clear that, look, we are doing this in the most humane way possible. But I think a lot of people back home just don't understand the nature of war. The war is tremendously violent. It's tr tremendously wasteful. It's tremendously damaging. But it has to be that way in order to get the results that we have th that we're looking for out of this, which is no more terror attacks like we saw on October on October 7th. Chuck, about a minute left. Uh, talked about Hezbollah and the potential of their engagement previously. Can you compare Hezbollah's military capacity to Hamas's? And so what that would mean for Israel if they were to uh, face a similar challenge from the north? So these uh, organizations, whether it's ISIS or Hamas or Al-Qaeda or what have you, uh, they are the masters of exaggeration. They always talk a good game. They're like the chihuahua that thinks he's a, a, a Doberman pincer. Uh, and so you have to take what the numbers that they put out, whether it's casualty numbers or troop strength numbers or anything, with a grain of salt. They just they're going to lie about it. There's no two ways about that. They're gonna they're gonna try to doctor the information to work in their favor because they understand that the information battle space is the most important one. That said, Hezbollah is more powerful than Hamas in terms of numbers and in terms of materiel. They have a lot more rockets. Um, so far tonight. After the speech from Nasrallah, it's been incredibly quiet up here in the north, and that's a very good sign. Chuck, uh, I have now, to cut you off there. Mean... We okay, are out of time. Ahead. From Israel, thank you for joining us very much. Sure. When we come back, an update from the House of Representatives. Don't go anywhere. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific 
specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. The House of Representatives has been working furiously since last week's election of Congressman Mike Johnson as House Speaker. Yesterday, the House approved a $14.3 billion military aid package for Israel by a 226 to 196 vote, with 12 Democrats joining all but two Republicans. Now, it also approved by a 396 to 23 vote, a resolution condemning support of terrorist organizations and anti-Semitism on college campuses. And there's still much more ahead, especially with the November 17 government funding deadline fast approaching. Here with me now to discuss all of this is Congressman Andy Harris. He serves on the House Committee on Appropriations and represents the 1st Congressional District of Maryland. Dr. Harris, welcome back to Washington Watch. It's good to be with you. Good to have you. Let's start off with the military aid package to Israel. The White House has threatened to veto it. And here's the justification that National Security Advisor John Kirby gave. Let's play clip four. I think we've been very clear. You saw it in Crane's statement last night how deeply concerning this House Republican bill is uh, and how it doesn't meet our national security means, meet, needs. Um, and as commander in chief, the president's never going to do anything. It doesn't meet our key national security needs. Congressman, what's your response to the idea that that bill does not meet our national security needs? Look, it, that's ridiculous. It's, it's exactly the amount of money the president asked for. But the only thing we did is we said in an era of $33.5 trillion federal debts, $2 trillion federal deficits, you have to find the money somewhere to pay for it. And we chose to take one-fifth of the increased IRS money uh, that, that the president put into the, to the uh, in, uh, Inflation Reduction Act last year, uh, so-called Inflation Reduction Act. So we said, yeah, okay, we're, we're going to hire, instead of 87,000 agents, we'd only hi- we, we can only hire 60,000 agents. And somehow that's a national security threat. Uh, look, the White House just wants to choose IRS agents over help to Israel. It's that clear. 
You think the issue is more about the IRS agents that would not be funded uh, rather than not including additional aid to Ukraine as well? Look, Ukraine is a subject for another day. The fact of the matter is Israel needs our, our help. They need our help now. And anything else is dodging the whole issue. Yeah, they're going to say, oh, yeah, we need to pile on, you know, aid to Taiwan, aid to Ukraine, aid to, uh, again, Israel. But look, we can divide all those up. That's what the new speaker wants to do. The most urgent need is in Israel. That's the one we took up first. We fully funded the president's request. He just wants to choose IRS agents over, uh, you know, Israeli safety and freedom. Well, Congressman Brad Sherman went even further than Secretary Blinken did, suggesting that the bill actually helps Hamas. Let's play clip two. Hamas was willing to kill, to decapitate and to die to undercut world support for Israel, particularly bipartisan support here in the United States. No one has done more than our new speaker to help Hamas achieve that objective. Congressman? It's just ridiculous. I mean, it's just literally ridiculous. We passed within days of the speaker taking office a $14 billion aid plan, everything Israel wanted, everything the president wanted. But I guess Mr. Sherman just likes IRS agents more than more than Israeli safety and freedom. And but moving on, because that one, I mean, the, the idea that they're actually helping Hamas with this, I, I, I would need to have him on and have him explain that. But uh, as I mentioned in the intro, another bill that passed yesterday was one that condemned support of terrorist organizations and anti-Semitism on college campuses. Now, what is maybe most surprising about that is that 23 members of the House voted against that resolution. They say that they do condemn anti-Semitism. They just didn't support that resolution. Do you have any more insight into why that would be? Well, look, I mean, some people do believe that uh, it's an, it, this is an issue of freedom of speech. But I think when you support terrorism, I think you go beyond uh, freedom of speech issues. And we know that uh, that our colleges and universities in general are hotbeds of liberal training. Uh, and again, we, we have to say no to it whenever we can. That's what we did yesterday. But I understand that some of the look, some of the members just basically think that, uh, you know, the, the uh, radical Islamic terrorists are right. There's a handful of people like that in the House. The rest, I think, have a concern about about free speech on college campuses. But again, you can take free speech way too far when you are supporting the terrorist horrors that occurred in Israel. Well, now changing subjects on you quickly, we have a government funding deadline coming up on November 17th. What's the latest on uh, the ability to meet that deadline? Well, look, the Senate passed uh, three th uh, appropriations bills this week. We passed our sixth appropriations bill today, uh, or seventh. So we're we're more than halfway there. We need to start uh, negotiating those bills. It's not going to get done before November 17th. So we're coming up with a plan to, in an orderly fashion, to keep the government running while we deal with these appropriations bills. We have to get back to the normal process because that's the only way we restore fiscal sanity to Washington. Well, and in fact, um, Speaker Johnson mentioned yesterday a new approach to stop gap funding, which he described as a laddered CR. Uh, understand that might actually be your idea from the Appropriations Committee. What can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, it, it, it was my idea. Uh, the fact of the matter is, up until now, we always uh, funded the entire government for the entire length of a continuing resolution. Well, you know, some of these some of these bills are not going to be sorted out till next year, but a handful of them can be sorted out in the next few weeks. So my suggestion is just continue funding for those departments for three or four weeks and continue the funding for the rest of the uh, the government until the uh, after the first of the year. But there's no need to, to go ahead and continue the funding for the entire government until the first of the year, because otherwise the Senate will never uh, be encouraged to actually do the work, which is to meet with the House, go to conference, come to an agreement, and uh, pass these individual appropriations bills. So the laddering idea, I think, is one way to force the issue. And again, it eliminates a, a shutdown of the entire government. If you, and I put it in air quotes, a shutdown, because this, of course, is never really a shutdown. But uh, again, then the talk is no longer of a shutdown of government. It's uh, certain agencies that the Senate would have the ability to, again, come to conference with the House, Come to the compromise and let's go ahead and fund those uh, those areas of government.
Congressman Andy Harris, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And it will be interesting to uh, follow and see whether Congress can actually uh, think about every single item that they are going to be funding, or if we're just going to get another Christmas tree, we will be sure to keep you apprised. Coming up, a new report is out on the top persecutors of Christians in the world. Who made the cut this year? We'll share it after the break. Don't go anywhere. Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be giving guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. As we know, each day, Christians around the world face government-sanctioned harassment, persecution, punishment, sometimes even death, simply for being Christians. Well, International Christian Concern has a new report highlighting the nation's entities and world leaders that are trampling on religious freedom. Now, some of these nations are repeat offenders. You'll recognize them, nations like Nigeria, China, and North Korea. Others, sadly, are new to the list. Here to unpack this new report is Jeff King, president of International Christian Concern. Jeff, welcome back to Washington Watch. Oh, thank you, Joseph. Pleasure to be with you. Now, tell us uh, about this updated report that you have. Uh, which countries have made the list, maybe for the first time? Yeah, um, so this is a report that we put out once a year. We want to uh, bring attention for journalists, for Capitol Hill, for legislators, uh, bring attention and bring some expertise to what's going on. It's a very complex subject, and so it's it's kind of a primer. Um, and so this year, uh, you know, there's there is uh, some attention given to the point that North Korea is below Nigeria, and that is purposeful. Uh, while while North Korea can always be number one or two on the list, we wanted to move Nigeria to the top. And Joseph, if you look at the last twenty years, imagine uh, probably up to a hundred thousand Christians killed, three and a half million farmers pushed off their lands, their land stolen, and, and this is all from radical Islamists. And uh, the, the, the mind bender in all this is that year after year, they come to Washington and they say, you know, my gosh, this is such a hard problem to tackle. We're doing our best. Uh, maybe if you sent more money or arms, we could do a better job. Um, and the only thing I say to people is like, you know, you look at the United States and it, to, to scale these numbers up to the United States, imagine the last 20 years, 400,000 Christians have been murdered. Um, and 18 million people kicked out of their homes, and the government never does anything. 
And the reason the reason is, is because the Islamists are embedded in the government and they control the organs of uh, the security organs of the state. And so that's intel, that's police, army, et cetera. Um, so Washington, I think, is slowly waking up to this and saying this is actually a religious conflict. They didn't actually even see that before. Uh, so that's part of the reason why we're doing that. Can you tell us also a bit about the factors uh, that these nations have in common? What do you see in all of these places that allow them to you know, make this list, reach this status? Yeah, well, there's some driving forces uh, around the world. Um, and so Marxism is still there. Marxism used to be the story. Uh, and then back in the back in the 80s, the Saudis took their oil wealth and they radicalized the world's Muslims all over the world. They were bringing, uh, you know, mosque leaders back to Saudi Arabia and radicalizing them, building radical mosques, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's where, why you see today an explosion of Islamic violence, uh, radicalism, et cetera, on all different all different levels. Um, and so there's there's that. That's a real big story today, as well as just you know, it's humanity. And so we fear that which is different. You always are going to see some of that, uh, that which is different or foreign. And India uh, falls into that category, for instance. Uh, India is a, a very interesting case, a country with religious freedom. Uh, just think of Mahatma Gandhi and his message of peace and tolerance. And then what's happened is radical Hindus have taken control under Prime Minister Modi. He's He's the head of the snake. He's the head problem. Uh, but he'll never say anything publicly. He's too he's too smart a politician to say anything publicly. But his political party, the BJP, and those leaders under him are very vocal. And there's no getting around what their message is about Christians and that uh, Hin that India needs to be a Hindu only nation and there's no room for anybody else. Yeah. Um, so those are the big factors. But the surprising thing is this. It's like, think, think about this. Overseas, the dictator will say, we have religious freedom. In China, they'll say, we have religious freedom. But what they do is they say, it just doesn't belong in the public square. So as long as you keep quiet, as long as you keep that to yourself, you don't spread it and you just keep it to yourself, no problem. Now, where does that sound familiar? That's the problem is that's what we're seeing creep into the West, even into the United States, being pushed out of the public square, uh, intoler complete intolerance towards Christianity and Christians. So I think that's one of the most surprising things we're seeing. Jeff, a couple new additions to this uh, in about a minute, uh, Eritrea, Northeastern Africa, Azerbaijan, and Eastern Europe. Both of these have been added to the list more recently. What are going, what's going on in these places? Well, Eritrea is, uh, you know, it's kind of shown up on our list time and again, uh, but we're trying to bring more attention to it. So I've actually been to Eritrea a, a few years ago. Uh, so it's a place run by a dictator. The, the guy has been there for almost 30 years, completely intolerant. Uh, and part of the deal is that Christianity, and this is the story in a lot of these countries, Christianity is growing. Uh, so what you'll see is, though, complete intolerance for uh, owning a Bible. You know, if you're caught with a Bible, you could be imprisoned. And oftentimes when you're in prison, you end up in a shipping container in the desert, in the sun, if you can imagine that. Uh, and with Azerbaijan, they basically went to war with uh, Armenia and a, a part of Armenia. Uh, and it was kind of a two-stage war, but they kind of finished off this enclave of Armenians uh, this year. And, and you have to understand the background and the context, because this is basically, this is Islam. They were working with Turkey, and, you know, the Armenians have lost millions of Christians over the last hundred years. Yeah. Jeff, uh, last question. Where can people go to read this report and get more information? Yeah, go to persecution uh, persecution.org. Uh, you can also look up International Christian Concern and the Persecutor of the Year report. Jeff King, president of International Christian Concern, thank you for this report and your diligence, your vigilance in uh, bringing us what we need to know about this critical information and this, uh, this uh, movement around the globe. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Jesse. And uh, this Sunday, November 5th, is in fact International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians. Make sure you keep them in your prayer. Coming up, we're going to talk about wokeness with John Cooper from Skillet. Stay with us.
Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be discipling their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled a Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. There's a new book coming out later this month titled Weak, Wimpy, and Woke. Now, if you've been following the headlines of conservative news outlets lately, you might think that book is about the U.S. military, but it is not. Actually, those words are in reference to the church here in America. Is that too harsh? Or perhaps a message the church needs to hear. Joining me now to discuss this is the author of the book, John Cooper, who's the lead singer of the 17-time platinum rock band Skillet. John, welcome back to Washington Watch. Hey, it's great to be back. Thank you for having me. Well, it's good to see you. This is certainly provocative. Uh, love the title. Um, you're going to get some attention with this. How did how did we go from you? Your last book was Awake and Alive. Now it's uh, Wimpy, Weak, and Woke. What's the transition as far as you can tell? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I knew it was provocative, but I didn't know it was going to uh, literally provoke people to so much anger. I wasn't trying to shock anybody. I have a deep love and concern for people. I care about their souls. I care about their kids. I care about their kids being raised in a country that is free and where you can express your religion. You can say what you want to say. And I am deeply concerned. I needed a title that expresses the fact that we are in dire straits. We really are on the brink of Western civilization. I don't think that that can be exaggerated. Um, 10 days after I announced the book and people were saying, this is so alarmist, we're not about to be destroyed. Two weeks later or 10 days later, the Israel massacre happens. And immediately following that, 
college students start cheering on the butchering of innocent people, the butchering of babies, the rape of women. And so many normal people in America were saying, how is this happening? And so we need to stop playing catch up. We need to understand the philosophies behind this. If you read my book, you won't be shocked about anything you see because I talk about these philosophies and I talk about why the church has fallen for them. And so it's a little bit like, here's the philosophies, here's why the church has fallen for them. They're utopian. They, they, they are the opposite of the Christian worldview that built this country, the, the Judeo-Christian ethics that built this country. And I tell people, how can we save our country? How can we get back mm -hmm. to the basics? Yeah. You know, John, I think conversations about this, uh, woke these days is a trigger word for a lot of people on both the left and the right. How do you define that? Sure, it's a great question. Woke has been defined a lot of different ways. I define it clearly in my book so people know what I'm talking about because I understand people put their definitions. The idea of, of being woke is this. It is PC culture on steroids. It is a way of seeing the world uh, with an obsession for social justice, but it is not social justice based on Judeo-Christian values or the Western understanding of justice. It is social justice based on Marxism and this idea of oppression. And by the way, that explains why you have LGBTQ groups in America who are cheering on Hamas. Everybody knows that the those LGBT identified people would never be able to live out their identities living in Gaza. It would not be allowed. And so you wonder why that's happening. It's because they are seeing the world through this lens of the oppressed. And basically the biggest oppressor is, Christ is Christianity. The biggest oppressor in that worldview is Western civilization rooted in Judeo-Christian ethics. And if you take that away, I'll tell you what, it is horrifying to think the world that my grandkids could grow up in, we really could lose it. The church needs to begin to speak up. And uh, because if not, we know what's going to happen. We got to get prepared for this. Make the connection for us. This title, it's Wimpy, Weak, and Woke. What's the connection between wokeness and then uh, wimpiness and weakness? Why do you have, why do you put those ideas together? Sure. All right. The idea of wimpy is this. The Christian church has sort of um, taken in these ideas from the secular left, which is uh, ultra tolerance. But what they mean by tolerance is not tolerance like it used to mean. What they mean is that I have to celebrate whatever someone else says is, quote unquote, their truth. So being wimpy that you have decided that you are not going to speak the truth because you want to be polite. That is wimpiness. Weakness is because we have not understood the philosophies behind this thing. And by the way, if people go to my website, johnlcooper.com, pre-order the book. This book has 650 footnotes of the original words to all of these secular utopians from Marx to Freud to the critical theories to critical race theory, saying what they want to do. And so the, the weakness comes in because we're not doing the intellectual work we need to. You Parents need to understand that the world right now, the reason they're coming after your kids is because they believe your kids are in danger. And who do they think that is putting your kids in danger? You, the parents, Christianity, the the, the guiding morals of the Bible the, and Western civilization, they are putting your kids in danger, they believe, and they're going to save them from Christianity. That is how bad it is. So parents, if you want to know what's going on, go and check out my book. Yeah. Now, the subtitle for your book is How Truth Can Save America from Utopian Destruction. That's an interesting phrase there because, of course, utopia is supposed to be the opposite of destruction. It's supposed to be uh, the the perfect world where everything is, is as it should be and we're all provided for and everyone is happy and living their truth and all of those things. Why do you describe a utopian destruction as our potential future? Yeah, what a great question. My book explains this thoroughly, FYI, but here's what it is. Utopia is based on the goodness of man. It says that we don't need God, we don't need morals. Man can perfect himself if we just fix all of his problems. And that is the reason that Christians 
so much of the Christian church has sort of joined together with these secular utopians because Christians have misunderstood the kingdom of God, the eternal state of heaven, you know, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit is the kingdom of God. They have confused that with this man-centered Utopia. Utopia is going to be based on diversity, equity, inclusion, and as long as we fix all the man's problems, then everything's going to be good. That is why you have large swaths of the church, things like, if you remember, I can't remember the name of the group. What was the group? It was um, something like pro-lifers for Biden or Christian pro-lifers for Biden or something like that. Their idea was that, well, the only reason that anyone would abort their baby is because they don't have money. So we're going to vote for socialists so that socialists give people money. And then when they have money, nobody is going to abort their baby because nobody would actually do that. That is a utopian idea where the Bible says, Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there's a very different yeah. worldview, and they both are totalizing worldviews yeah. at odds with each other. So I, in my book, I say, Christians, we need to regain our moral confidence in the Word of God. Yeah, and I agree with that, that this really is a worldview difference. And I would add that the idea of a utopia is encouraging us to look to this life for perfection. And of course, the the Christian worldview teaches us that our hope is not in what we're going to be able to create now. But if you deny the existence of a God and his Savior who's going to come redeem all things and defeat sin and defeat death, then all you have to look forward to is what's here and now and what you can save through political revolution. And I think that is, in fact, the well-intended what the left is trying to do, um, and that utopia because of sin and because Jesus is ultimately the only solution will never materialize, and all efforts to achieve that utopia have been very, very painful. Uh, John Cooper, very quickly, one more time, remind people where they can get your book. All right. The only place you can pre-order my book is my website, and that's important, uh, johnlcooper.com. And also, we're giving away the first introduction chapter for free. So if you don't know if you want it, go sign up for my mailing list. We're going to send you a link to hear the audio recording of the introduction. I think you're going to say, oh, I get what this is about. And it's quite important that Christians, parents, everyday average Americans understand where we are at regain our moral confidence in the Word of God. I did get a chance to see the advanced copy, and uh, people do want to read it. John Cooper, thanks for your your courage and your uh, thoughtfulness on this and your time today. Thank you so much. Now, continuing this conversation about uh, wokeness and the impact of this, uh, I I've written an article recently, and I want to bring in my friend David Clausen from the Center for Biblical Worldview to continue breaking this down. We're going to talk about your brain on critical theory. David, welcome to the show. Happy Friday. Good to see you, Joseph. Happy Friday to you. We just had a great conversation with John. That guy is so enthusiastic. I love everything about him. Um, But let's, and he even brought up this Hamas-Israel connection to critical theory. Tell us a bit about that. Absolutely. So we say it all the time that ideas have consequences, Joseph, and I'm sure everyone in the world has been following uh, what's happened in Israel since October the 7th. You know, that's a date that's going to live in infamy uh, in Israel right along uh, with uh, June 1967, October 1973, other famous wars that have happened in that country. But I don't think what most of us were prepared for was the appalling response uh, from many in the West, uh, particularly college students on elite university campuses campuses. And the way I look at it, Joseph, I think your article uh, helps us kind of sift through this, is that ideas have consequences. And for generations on our elite college campuses, we've been taught, we've been teaching young people to look at the world uh, through the worldview of critical theory, uh, through the worldview of intersectionality, uh, that fundamentally sees the world through the lens of oppressor and oppressed. And Part of that also is this ideology of settler colonialism, uh, this uh, idea, uh, and we don't have time to unpack it, but this idea that the Jews, uh, the Israelis, uh, somehow don't actually have a moral claim to their land. And because of that, uh, their enemies, uh, whether it's Hamas or Hezbollah or whoever whoever it is, uh, can use any means whatsoever uh, to evict them from the land. And so, again, ideas have consequences And my goodness, uh, bad ideas can have sinister consequences. 
Yeah, and, and I think this idea here um, that your brain on critical theory, we saw this in the U.S. In, in the summer of love of 2020, where we saw people rioting and looting and destroying their neighbors' businesses. And um, infamously, uh, I think it was CNN or MSNBC, one of those two, threw up this headline. There was a burning building behind them, and the headline was, these are mostly peaceful protests. And everybody chuckled and laughed because this was a strange characterization of obvious rioting happening right behind them. What was even the instinct to uh, describe these crimes as mostly peaceful protests? really came from this critical theory. And you mentioned the categories of the oppressors and the oppressed. And mm -hmm. I think one of the things that kind of came, that, that was not noticed, uh, that was more subtle while we defined people and categorized them based on their skin color, is that we were also changing the moral framework that we use to determine what is right and wrong. Because in the summer of love of 2020, uh, we were essentially saying, well, we need to listen to the criminals. They're actually the oppressed. Therefore, they have things to say. And that their behavior by virtue of being the oppressed may need to be understood more than it needs to be stopped when the same behavior by those categorized as the oppressors would um, be something we'd be outraged by, and the, and the uh, law enforcement would be immediately called, and people would be arrested. And, and we, of course, were concerned about that when it was rioting and looting and largely the destruction of property. But I think what we've seen, as that same logic has been applied in Israel, is that we have now turned a corner into a place where we are kind of excusing, justifying, trying to understand mass rape, mass murder, putting babies in ovens, because the people who are doing it have been identified as the oppressed, and the targets of their violence are those identified as the oppressors. So they say that this is okay. No, that, that's right, Joseph. And this is kind of a juxtaposition of putting together consequentialist ethics uh, with these intersectionality categories. You know, intersectionality, men are always oppressing women. Uh, white people are always oppressing black and brown people. Straight people are oppressing gay people. Uh, those who own their property are oppressing renters. With this consequentialist ideology that the means justifies uh, the ends. And again, with this settler colonialism, this idea that the Jews, the Israelis, are somehow uh, uh, usurpers of the, the land rights. And of course, this is a complicated issue. But if you allow that framework to guide your the way you do ethics, Joseph, uh, then all of these, uh, these horrifying means that you just outlined, well, they're justified because guess what? They're directed against the oppressor. And again, this is, this is a gangrene cancer um, mm -hmm. that unfortunately we're, we've now seen has been inculcated in a lot of college campuses. And my goodness, this is dangerous, but it's, thankfully it's being exposed in this conversation. Well, David, we see that this idea has metastasized and it has uh, sunk deep in many places. What's the response for uh, Western culture and the church? Yeah, I think as Christians, we know ultimately the gospel, the meta narratives of Scripture, uh, the meta narrative of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Uh, uh, the biblical worldview allows us to see things as they are. Christians are the ones that believe in objective truth. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't marry, matter who you're married to. It doesn't matter all these superficial categories. Uh, what matters is there, there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And so a return to understanding objective truth, objective morality, which again is a byproduct of a Christian yeah. worldview. Uh, that's yeah. something we need to hold on to. That's something the church needs to insist on. Yeah. And one of the most countercultural Christian doctrines in today's world is the idea that even when you are legitimately a victim, you cannot do whatever you want. We must bless those who curse us, pray for those who spitefully use us. And of course, uh, a big reason for that is the fact that Jesus was the greatest victim of all, yet still laid down his life for us. We're out of time. David, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Joseph. Friends, we thank you for being with us as well. Have a blessed weekend. We'll see you on Monday. Until then, fear God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. 
Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 